This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain. Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat up old running shoes. Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery. Well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store. Like now, go. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play. This episode, I'm talking to astronomer Chris Empey about the search for habitable worlds beyond our solar system and how close we are to discovering life on another planet. So my name is Chris Empey. I'm a professor of astronomy at the University of Arizona in uh, Tucson. And uh, I've worked here. I'm a Brit, but I've worked here for 35 years, long time, because we have clear skies. We have 300 clear nights a year. You can't beat that, certainly not in the UK. Um, and so I work on observational cosmology. My research is distant galaxies and the black holes that they harbor. And uh, But I also do a lot of work on education research. And I like exoplanets. Uh, so I wrote a book about them because they're very cool. And we know of uh, thousands of them now, which we didn't used to, and they're habitable worlds, and um, and it's a very exciting subject. Yeah, great. I mean, thanks for thanks for joining us on the on the podcast, Chris. It's it's, it's great to have you here. Um, yeah, I, I, as you say, the, the the reason we're we're talking today really is because of your your latest book, which is uh, Worlds Without End, but sort of about all, about all these exciting things that are going on in exoplanet. You know, the search for exoplanet science, the search for um, a second Earth, perhaps, or habitable conditions, habitable, um, yeah, uh, worlds, and perhaps even uh, life beyond Earth. Um, yeah, I, the, I, I was sort of thinking um, the the book and the and the subject matter of the book, um, Worlds Without End, are very timely because it sort of feels it feels like a, to me as a sort of outsider to the whole thing that exoplanet science is it just seems to be just the the, the fastest developing field in astronomy or or 
you know, cosmology. Would, would you agree with that? And, and, and is that indeed why you decided to write, to, uh, write the book? Sure, it is. I mean, before 1995, we didn't know any planets orbiting other stars. And now we have 5,300, I think, is the current census. Um, so it's very rapid progress. If you plot it on a graph, it's, it's almost exponential. It's almost like Moore's law or sort of information technology, which we're not used to science moving that fast. Perhaps in genetics it does too. Uh, so it's very rapid. Uh, and of course, it's moving towards something very interesting, which is beyond just gathering more and more exoplanets. You know, after you've found the first few thousand, it's like, okay, do we really need a thousand more? What we're trying to home in on is this issue of habitability and Earth clones, and then the very big prize is the detection of life beyond Earth. Now, we haven't got there yet, but we can sort of see it up ahead. Yeah, it, it sort of feels like in, in the 90s, once those first few were found, that's how it sort of um, it then just exploded after that. Do, do, you, um, do, do you sort of look back and think how... Like it's sort of difficult to remember what it was like before exoplanets, and and, and how did how did we not discover them sooner? Considering considering how how easily we, we seem to detect them and, and study them now. I mean, it's a good question because I I do remember. I mean, I've been doing this long enough to remember. As a younger researcher, people were looking hard. I mean, that the history of the subject is interesting because people had speculated about the existence of exoplanets, uh, you know, since Greek and Roman times. People had wondered. And then through the centuries, as astronomy techniques got better, people tried looking. And the truth was that before 1995, you know, this was a a tough field. There were reputations left in tatters, and there were a graveyard of astronomers who claimed an exoplanet, and it went away. It wasn't in their data. So there were, everyone was very skittish through the 80s and 90s, because there had been many false claims. And, you know, it was a tough field. And so the floodgates opened with the first detection by a, by a pair of Swiss astronomers in 1995. Uh, but it was still a very difficult thing to do. And so this is a field actually that's been driven by technology. Uh, and, and that's the reason it succeeded in the mid nineties and why the progress has been so rapid. It's basically very precise spectrographs uh, sitting behind larger and larger telescopes that it can tease out these very subtle signatures of a planet around another star. Yes, that was something I was going to ask you to give us a an overview of it, if possible. What 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 methods are there available to astronomers to first of all detect exoplanets and second of all find out more about them? So the thing that would be most obvious or seem most obvious is actually the hardest. Let's just take a picture. You know, just look at a star and look for a planet near a star. And and the reason that doesn't work mostly is the reason why this is a hard field. So the Earth, just take the Earth and the Sun as an example, the Earth reflects about a billionth of the Sun's light because uh, we don't emit any light of our own. So when you're looking for an Earth-like planet around a Sun-like star, you're looking for something a billion times fainter than the star, and when it's seen at a great distance, it's very close to the star. So it's just it's like looking for a firefly in, the, in a football stadium floodlight, you know, right there. And it's just very hard. So that method doesn't work. I mean, we've done it now, eventually, with great difficulty. So the two methods that were used for almost all the exoplanets that we know of, all 5,000 of them, are the, the Doppler method, which is looking at the tug of uh, the, the planet will exert a tug on the star. They, they pull with equal force. Newton said that. Uh, and so we look for the star wobbling because of the planet that's unseen uh, orbiting it. And that was how the first detection was made. And then the other method, if the planet happens to orbit in the equatorial plane, 
is that the planet could cross the face of the star every orbit. Um, and then the star will dim very slightly as the planet blocks some of the starlight, and then it'll happen again an orbit later. That's a very small signal. For, for an Earth, it's a, a hundredth of a percent of the sun's light, because the Earth is a hundred times smaller than the sun. So uh, that's very hard, and that really didn't succeed until the Kepler spacecraft was launched uh, two decades ago. So those are the workhorse methods of finding exoplanets, and they're both indirect. They both don't look at the planet directly. They look at either the planet tugging on the star, and you measure the starlight, or the planet crosses the face of the star, and you see the brightness of the star dip briefly. Um, so how can we then use that to determine whether or not a planet is, is Earth-like, or do we, do we, do we apply different, different techniques to, to actually find out whether or not a planet is indeed like Earth? So each of those methods do give you a first hint of what the nature of the planet is, but they don't give you a lot of detail. So the, the tugging, the gravity tugging, or the Doppler method, that gives you the mass of the planet. So you can say it's Earth mass or close to Earth mass, That's and you get the orbit, of course. And you know the star, so you know how far away it is, uh, and therefore you know the temperature on that planet. And so now you have a clue to habitability, because you're looking for a planet that orbits a star at the right distance where water could be liquid on the surface. And then the transit method, the one where the star is eclipsed briefly by the planet, that gives you the ratio of the cross-sectional area of the planet to the star. So it gives you the size. So the Doppler method gives you the mass of the planet, and the transit method or eclipse method gives you the size. And that's all. And the orbit, of course. And that's not a lot of information. Um, so, you know, we've got very, very basic information for almost all these 5,000 exoplanets and, and perhaps a hint of habitability, but that's all. It's just very broad brushstroke at this level. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Do we generally find a decent amount of planets that we think were probably habit habitable or, you know, are, are they sort of all scorching hot Jupiters where nothing could survive? I mean, a lot of them are un uninhabitable, we think. Also, we have to sort of just take a pause and say that when astronomers talk about habitability, it's a pretty simplistic definition. We're just saying, oh, it's at the right distance from a star to have liquid on the surface. But we don't always know what the atmosphere of that planet is, and the atmosphere makes a big difference. I mean, the Earth is warmed up quite significantly relative to what the temperature would be if there were no atmosphere by the presence of oxygen, ozone, and, and of course carbon dioxide or greenhouse gas. So when you don't know the atmosphere, you can't even really say what the surface temperature would be. And then why does liquid water, why is that so critical? We have you know, we have life on the Earth that's in deep ocean trenches where there's no starlight, right? So you don't need starlight to have life. The Earth proves an, is a counterexample. Um, and we know life on Earth in extremophiles, as they're called, where life can exist above the boiling point of water and below the freezing point. So, you know, we're just using a very simple definition because you have to start somewhere. Um, but you don't, you know, it doesn't really tell you about habitability, um, beyond the sort of these these simple ways of defining it. Um, so, you, so 
do the does there current currently exist any technique or any method by which we could actually detect organic life um on an exoplanet if, if it if it existed um we're getting towards that but i also realized i didn't quite answer your previous question which is there are habitable planets and there are definitely uninhabitable planets super hot jupiters like the very first planet discovered so to put a number on it it seems like roughly one in three stars has a planet that might be habitable sometimes it's earth-like and actually sometimes it's bigger than the earth there are a lot of super earths out there in fact there are more super earths than any other kind of planet and our solar system doesn't have one so these are things we just learned about by doing these studies so yes there are a lot of habitable planets out there but to go beyond saying it could be habitable and finding if it actually is inhabited by microbes, basically microbial life, um, that's a very difficult experiment because you have to isolate that planet, that billion times fainter little blip of light next to a star, and take its reflected light and smear it out into a spectrum and look for the signature of things in the, things in the atmosphere, gases in the atmosphere that allude to life, like oxygen and ozone in the Earth's case. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's interesting you're, you're t- talking about um, microbial life because that is essentially what what we're sort of talking about here, isn't it? When we sort of talk about life beyond Earth, I mean, you, you see it even in what what we're doing with the, sort of the the icy moons around Jupiter and Saturn in the solar system. You know, we're we're sort of looking for places where the, the very smallest forms of life could exist because um, we're, we're well, presumably you and we are we're not sort of talking about. Um, technologically civilized civil, uh, you know, um, species who, who could be, with whom we could actually communicate, are we? Not really. I mean, again, you're doing the easiest thing first. If, if life exists elsewhere in the universe, it probably has to go through progression as we did on Earth. So for, you know, for 90%, people forget, for 90% of the history of life on Earth, you would have needed a microscope to see it. And it was in the oceans. It didn't really crawl onto the land, plants and animals in the last half billion years. So if we think that's typical, then most planets with life are going to have microbial life and it may or may not become advanced and intelligent like we are and it may take a long time so it might be quite rare so most of these experiments are looking for microbial life because we think that's going to be more abundant and also when microbial life takes grip on a planet it can change the entire atmosphere like the one part in five oxygen we breathe was put there by microbes so it's a good tracer it's a good thing for astronomers to look for But you're right, we would love to know about more advanced forms of life. Now, interestingly, that same method of looking at the atmosphere that could tell you about technological civilization, because the the gases like ozone and oxygen or methane, those are called biomarkers. They're just signs of life, microbial life. But you can also look for something called a technosignature, which is a gas in an atmosphere of an Earth-like planet that indicates technology or civilization. So a good example would be nitrous oxide on the Earth because that's an industrial pollutant. It just doesn't occur naturally in any abundance at all. So there's some gases which, if you see them in an atmosphere, it's sort of telling you there's an industrial civilization um, there. But that's interesting, too, because, of course, once the civilization progresses, presumably they, they stop being so dirty and messing up their atmosphere with nitrous oxide, and then you wouldn't find it anymore. So it's a little window, perhaps, on a stage of development of a civilization. So all of these... Are, these are tricky indicators because they're they're not eternal. They represent a time window of a particular thing that you're looking for. That's the thing. I, I, that's one of the things that sort of uh, occurred to me when I was sort of um, 
reading up about this was the idea that it, we, we're not just talking about space, uh, as in we're, we're we're looking for something that might exist somewhere. We're also we're also talking about time, aren't we? I mean, what are the chances for what are the chances that life does exist somewhere else that we could actually find it? But also, what are the chances that life exists at this moment that we could find it and didn't just exist two million years ago? Long, you know, obviously long before we were able to detect it. Right. So, no, you're right. The real estate of time is as important as the real estate of space. I mean, just to put a number on it, since we were talking about habitable worlds, the, the research so far, which is mostly in our backyard, the nearest thousand or so light years of the galaxy, that projects to, say, 10 billion habitable worlds in the Milky Way. So that's that's a pretty big number. And that's why astronomers think, well, some of them have got to have microbes on them. They don't have to, but it's likely. Now, the real estate of time is interesting because there was enough there were enough heavy elements and there was enough water and carbon and so on to make an earth clone that got it in a 14 billion year old universe the earth is only four and a half billion years old so you could have an earth out there that had a seven or eight billion year head start on us and life started way back then now what would that look like we can't even imagine that so uh, you know, the, the real state of time is very interesting because it means the cosmic experimentation of biology is an experiment that's been going on an awful long time. <laughs> yeah, and it's not sort of, um, all, all these questions are sort of the concern of this this field, astrobiology, which I suppose must be sort of really in its in its infancy when you compare it to something like like astronomy. Um, what, 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 what does astrobiology sort of tell us and... Is it is it indeed as 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 young a field as you might sort of expect it to be? It, it is a young field. This, you know, modern astronomy you could say started with Galileo, so it's it's four hundred years. And astrobiology, maybe it starts in the nineteen fifties. Um, Miller and Urey uh, did these famous chemistry experiments where they tried to show how life on Earth started by putting ingredients in a flask and giving ener- adding energy and seeing if you got you know, in, anything interesting happening. Well, you didn't get RNA or DNA, but you did get amino acids and you got organic sludge that could have led to life. So that's a reminder that astrobiology is not just about looking for exoplanets and life on them. It's also about looking at the Earth and trying to understand how life started on the Earth, which we still don't know exactly, and, and arguing from our own example, the only example we have, what the likelihood of life beyond Earth is. It also means looking at the range of life on Earth, as we were talking about earlier. There's life forms on Earth that don't need a star, so why should life elsewhere always need a star? Well, we don't know how to look for life out there that doesn't have a star, so that's just something we can't do. Um, but life on Earth is is telling us interesting things that will frame the search for life beyond Earth. Yeah, and I I think also when you when you consider like life on Earth and 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 the chances that that life w- would would ever have, you know, developed on Earth, but not just sort of microbial life. You know, when when you think about like, you know, a dolphin and a cockroach and a human being and an eagle and a tomato and a banana and just all the different things, it's just. I think I, I always find whenever you sort of start actually thinking about what we know about the rest of the of the universe and what exoplanets have told us and some of the just completely you know, hell-ridden, inhospitable worlds. I mean, life, it, it sort of really brings home just how precious and amazing life on Earth is, doesn't it? Yeah, and the, all that that list of things you said, you know, you could go from an, you know, an amoeba to a, a, a blue whale. It's all one biological experiment. That's kind of amazing. It is all examples of one thing, really, genetically. And so what 
how different might it be on another with another starting point on another world perhaps with different slightly different chemistry or different physical conditions so we should not expect life elsewhere to be just like terrestrial life that, that's sort of naive and very anthropocentric uh, and I think that that uncertainty gets larger as you go to the more complex forms of life I mean microbes elsewhere may well be like microbes here you know viruses bacteria amoeba whatever single-celled organisms may just be fairly common but by the time you get to higher levels of organization like plants and animals and then intelligence and so on i think all bets are off i mean it's it could progress in any number of ways and it might be very unrecognizable i mean my favorite example of aliens when we're talking about aliens is is octopus because octopus branched out from our tree of our branch of the tree of life almost half a billion years ago and it's got brains in all its arms and then a central brain and it has this skin which has 400 million you know incredible sacks filled with dyes that can change color and texture 10 times a second that's insane that's and we can't talk to that animal and if we saw it on another world we go oh wow an alien life form amazing it's intelligent too because it has complex behavior as the octopus does so it's, a, it's another example of how you try and look at your own planet to learn as much as you can about the diversity of what might be out there. Absolutely. Um, also, in, in terms of just the, the wider solar system, just, you, you're sort of mentioning, you know, our, our solar system doesn't have a super Earth. Our solar system doesn't have um, a hot Jupiter. So do we sort of learn, learn quite a lot about our own our own cosmic backyard by um by by looking at, at other other planets around other stars other star systems well we learn something interesting which is that we think there's a number of habitable spots in the solar system you know we think europa moon of jupiter it's a water world could have life under that ice pack we think even tiny little enceladus the saturn moon which has geysers and icy jets going into space it has water under its surface titan which has totally different uh, chemistry based on ethane and methane, that's a moon of Saturn. So those are very interesting places where there could be microbes, and we can't detect those around other stars. There are no exomoons, so moons around exoplanets, that's just too hard to do. We'll probably get there in a few years, but at the moment we don't know how to detect exomoons. And so there are all these habitable locations in our own solar system that we cannot detect the counterparts of those in other star systems. So it's really, that's another way of saying astrobiology is still a pretty young subject. Mm. Yeah, actually, the, the, there was another thing I was going to get your, your your opinion on, and it's it's probably quite a, quite a, quite a, quite a tricky question to answer uh, uh, for for a scientist. But I I often think back to that to, to that time before um, before the first ex- confirmed detection of an exoplanet. And, pre- and presumably, astronomers in the sixties and seventies, and right up to the point that they were actually detected, essentially said. It, it's incredibly likely that that they do exist. I mean, how how could we only be the only planets orbiting all of, you know a star of all the of all the stars in the universe? Um, do do you do you, are are you tempted to sort of apply that logic to to life beyond Earth and sort of say, if we're being honest with ourselves, it pretty much definitely has to exist, or or would you or would you not would you not like to go that that far? I think I think this subject is a sort of test of how rigorously scientifically you think, because the truth is you cannot extrapolate from a sample of one. It's not correct. It's any philosopher or logician would say, no, don't do that. That's dangerous. Uh, and so you can get snake bit very easily by doing that. So 
you know, you can say 10 billion habitable worlds. They got all the ingredients for life. You know, they got carbon, they got water, they got energy, local energy. Well, how bizarrely fluke-like would life on Earth be if we were the only one out of 10 billion habitable worlds in the Milky Way? Yeah, true, but it's possible because we don't know. I mean, maybe there were flukes involved in the formation of life on Earth. So yeah, as a statistical statement, you'd say, well, very probably there's life beyond Earth, and maybe there's a lot of microbial life beyond Earth. But you put that huge asterisk by it and that caveat because you, you just can't be overconfident. You can't say too much based on your own example. You're just not allowed to do that scientifically. It's, it's, it's a mistake. <laughs> And in terms in terms of the, the search search for a second Earth, um, if indeed one does exist, is do you, do you sort of look at that also in the in the sense of within the context of of climate change and, and what's happening to our planet? Um, is there is there an argument that 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 we're looking for a second Earth because we might eventually have to go there? I think it's a little more indirect than that. I mean, I, I think the bottom line is that if there is an Earth clone, and there could be, you know, maybe it's 20, 30, 100 light years away, well, that's still thousands or tens of thousands of trillions of miles. We're not going to go there. I mean, we're probably not even going to send nanobots there. Um, so it's not a realist. There's no planet B. There's no plan B, right? we got to make our stand on the Earth. Um, so it's not helping in that regard, uh, just like terraforming Mars is not going to help us. You know, yes, we could make Mars livable and it will cost hundreds of trillions of dollars and take centuries. And, you know, really, we're going to do that rather than take care of the Earth. Um, so what is it useful for? I think the life stories of Earth-like planets elsewhere that we're starting to learn about, they're illustrative. They're interesting because they tell us how stable or unstable our global climate is and our whole a planet is because it depends on geology and other things, not just the atmosphere and not just on us. So there are some sort of lessons in there about what we learn about habitable planets, but they're a little indirect. I mean, they, they, you know, if we take our eye off the ball of this planet, then we're, we're really messed up. So exoplanets aren't going to save us. <laughs> um, how do you feel about um, the... Um sort of well as we're recording it's sort of like the, the first year really of the james Webb space telescope and it's already teaching us quite a lot about exoplanets and as well as you know all the other amazing stuff it's doing um have, have you been excited by well well presumably you're, you're excited about web in terms of your own your own field but in in terms of the context of um in terms of the context of, of exoplanets yeah have, have you been excited about what you've seen so far it's a it's a beautiful telescope working extremely well it's interesting, though, for exoplanets, it's it's going to contribute, and it has done some interesting things. It's not going to solve, answer these problems. It may not even detect life beyond Earth. Because re remember, it was conceived of before exoplanets were discovered. So it's not optimized for the experiment we're talking about, where you look at the atmosphere of an Earth-like exoplanet for signs of life. It isn't actually great at that job. It's going to do it with great difficulty and take hundreds and hundreds of hours to just observe five or six targets. It's rather inefficient. Um, so there are three huge telescopes all being constructed on the Earth that are going to do that experiment really well with more light, much more light gathering power. And that's what I think will make the breakthrough, the detection of life beyond Earth. One of them is we have skin in the game where it's a 22 and a half meter telescope being built in Chile. and We make the mirrors here in Arizona. There is a uh, Caltech and University of California telescope to be built on Mauna Kea at 30 meters. Um, it's a little bit stalled because the native Hawaiians are not sure they want another big telescope on Mauna Kea. 
And then the Europeans actually are in the lead with their extremely large telescope, 39 meters, also going to Chile. And any of those three telescopes are probably going to succeed, uh, you know, in a field where James Webb will really struggle a little bit to compete. And that's and that's even though they're they're ground based and have to compete with Earth's atmosphere. Yeah, that's so that's a good question, and and that's something most people have not been aware of. In in astronomy, in the last few decades, we've perfected this technique called adaptive optics, and it's basically uh, your big mirror still doesn't do much. It just tries to be as rigid as possible but you can make your secondary mirror the second mirror you use to reflect light back into an instrument you can make it flexible uh, very thin and you can move or flex that mirror dozens or hundreds of times a second and with that technique you can take out the atmospheric blurring so the seeing as astronomers call it the the jumbling up of an image and the smearing of an image caused by our atmosphere We've got technology now that can pretty much take that out. And so there are telescopes. We have one in Chile that took a few years ago, took a picture that was sharper than the Hubble Space Telescope. So we've been competing with space head-to-head -head on image quality for a few years now. And so, yes, these large new telescopes will all have adaptive optics, and they'll all be taking super sharp images, and they're bigger. They have more light-gathering power than James Webb, and that's sort of why, they'll, why, they'll, why they will outcompete James Webb on this particular project. Is that is that like AI? Is that like a, a, a computer fi fixing it for you, or, or how does it work? It's not quite AI. I mean, it, I, I think probably neural nets could actually help do that, do those corrections. But basically, it's just um, you you actually use a laser. So you use a laser to bounce laser light off the air, the layer of the atmosphere that's all jumbled up with turbulence. It's just turbulent motions of the gas in the atmosphere, and you register that reflected laser light. And you use that uh, reflected light to correct in real time the shape of your mirror. So you're sort of gathering information on what the atmosphere is doing to jumble up your image in real time. And dozens or hundred times a second, you're correcting minutely the shape of your mirror to exactly compensate for it. So it's a sort of a closed loop system. Uh, it's not quite AI or neural nets because you could do it before they even were really mature. Um, but it's a, it's a pretty clever engineering technology. Uh, and it's for, and it's mature. It was I remember suffering through engineering on the telescopes we use when all these people doing AOs were always taking our telescope time to play with their toys, and and I was just annoyed because there were stars were out and I wasn't able to take data. But it was worth it because after all the engineering and all the time they took to get it right, it does really work now. Awesome. Um, just 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 finally, I mean, now that the book's written and and, and it's out, are you? Are you going to leave exoplanets for now? <laughs> like, will you will will you come back to that field, or or, or do you sort of have um, do you sort of sort of have, have pro projects and, and and questions to ask elsewhere? I mean, it's I'm still attached to it as a subject because it's so exciting. I think there's going to be a little interim here before we f detect life, the first microbial life, and then things will get really hot again. I'll, I'll probably reengage, but I think maybe for a while I go back into cosmology, look at some. You know, start caring about distant galaxies and supermassive black holes and things like that. Uh, they've been sitting there, you know, wanting some more attention. So I think I'll go back to those for a while. Does the um, so do, do, are, are you sort of more more excited about what about what 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 Web can do in in that respect? Absolutely. So Web's killer app and that thing we was really built for primarily was first light to detect the very first galaxies and and also by extension the first big black holes in the universe. And I, there's no, and there's every sign that it'll do that experiment really well. So, yeah, that's going to be very exciting. When did the first stars 
form? When did the first galaxies form? Actually, which came first, like chicken and the egg? Was it the first yeah. stars or the first galaxies? And what about the black holes? How did they start? Because we know in the nearby universe, galaxies grew over 14 billion years and we have big beefy galaxies with billion solar mass black holes. Well, how did that all happen? Where did it start and when? Doesn't it, doesn't it feel like we're, we're on the precipice, both in terms of that and also in terms of um, exoplanets and search for habitability? It feels like within the next 20 years, some absolutely incredible revelations could come about, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, in cosmology, we have some huge problems, issues or enigmas like dark energy and dark matter. We really haven't got too far with those. So that's mm-hmm. you could view that as a glass half full or a glass half empty. I mean, that's a challenge and it's exciting to have the two biggest ingredients of the universe that you don't know what they are. It's an opportunity, I guess. Fantastic. Cool. Well, uh, thanks for coming on the podcast, Chris, and uh, good luck with the book when it comes out, uh, Worlds Without End. Yeah, it was fun. Um, yeah, we will hopefully get you in the podcast again some some point maybe, maybe to talk about dark matter and or or the or you know the sort of the, the dawn of the universe that would be fun it's good to talk to you Ian thank you for listening to this episode of the radio astronomy podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine for more of our podcasts visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com or head to acast iTunes or Spotify <laughs>